0: Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu/visit.
1: Hello, and welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt. I'm here in Washington. James is in the Shenandoah. We are proud partners with the Sign Institute at American University. We're going to learn a lot with today's show, but first, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Every new listener helps. Thanks so much. So thanks for being here. You know, James, there are a lot of pressing priorities during this terrible pandemic. We all want the economy and jobs to bounce back. We all want to be able to share time and occasions with friends and family. For those like you and me, we want to watch sports again. But nothing, nothing is as important as opening schools later this summer. The educational and social costs to kids and their families of missing school is staggering and could take a long time to overcome. The same time COVID-19 is surging in many places. And your friend John Barry, the foremost expert on the 1918 influenza, told us four months ago we're not preparing. And unfortunately, that has in too many places been the case. School superintendents all over America this week are struggling with some really tough choices to open and how, what limitations, what contingencies. One is Lisa Ramey, the superintendent of schools in West Des Moines, Iowa, with 9,000 students, a lot of middle-class kids, also over a third qualifying for the school lunch program. Uh, And she is one of the most outstanding school superintendents in the entire state of Iowa. She joins us now from Des Moines. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Ramey.
2: Well, thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: You have gone through for weeks what must be an agonizing uh, series of choices. You've decided, at least for now, on a hybrid plan, giving parents uh, the option of online learning with permission or in-person classes with very strict rules. This must have really, really been a tough process. Tell us how you came to your conclusion.
2: Yeah, I would tell you it's been... uh... Uh, when I went into school administration, I, I guess I never imagined that I would be in the middle of a pandemic and having schools closed for a full quarter of the last academic year and then spending the entire summer and plan still continuing to plan, even though our Board of Education has made a decision, um, how we would open schools in the fall in the middle of a pandemic. So, you know, it, we've we've done lots done lots of learning ourselves, um, looking to countries outside of the U.S. to see how they continued to some continue to keep schools open and what strategies and mitigation strategies did they put in place. Um, We've looked at CDC guidance, of course, followed state guidance. We've talked to school, our school attorney. Um, We have a leadership team that has You know, from our school nutrition, uh, school nurses, getting teacher feedback, building level administrator feedback. Um, We've sent out surveys to all of our school staff as well as our community twice um, to get feedback in order to shape our decision um, that we took to the board on Monday, just July 13th.
1: I can understand how a high school student or even middle school students can learn virtually, taught online. Uh, but how, how if, if a parent of a seven or eight-year-old decides they want to take the online option, isn't that much more difficult? And don't they have to have a parent or someone with them?
2: Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think it's more challenging at the elementary level than it is at the secondary level. Um, you know, that engagement piece and um, ensuring that students are um, online and, and because there's, it's not only synchronous, meaning when we have teachers. So we would have teachers who are dedicated to working with our students online, but then there will also be that time that we're asking students to work what we call asynchronously. So that's when they're not online with a teacher, but they have work that they need to be doing at home. So, um, it would be imperative for families to set up routines. Absolutely. Um, for our, for all kids, no matter what grade level, but really more so at that, at that younger age, really in that, you know, that asynchronous time as well, when the teacher isn't there guiding the student, um, through that learning process. So it, it, you know, I, I would tell you our, our first goal was to really think about how we can get students back in the classroom, because while we believe in technology and that being a tool in education, um, it, we that virtual learning, we don't believe is always the best learning that we believe we can really be more effective um, when we're face-to-face with kiddos. And as we think about our helping kids learn to read and those really young, you know, our preschool, kindergarten, first graders, how important that work is. And so we've really had to work with our staff and our I'm, I'm so blessed to have a wonderful teaching and learning central office team to really reshape and rethink if we have a kindergartner who, um, due to whatever various reasons, select that online model. How do we um, provide that synchronous learning where we're really supporting them? And then what can we do asynchronously to help families as well? Because we know that that's really challenging for parents in this time.
1: And, and and for those that choose the in-person classes, uh, now we know young people aren't nearly as likely uh, to get the virus or transmit the virus, but what kind of feedback are you getting from your teachers, your administrators, your janitors, your school bus drivers, a number of whom must be in their 50s or, or older?
2: Right. Yeah. So uh, another great question. You know, um, we've had all of those folks are a part of our, our planning. But I will tell you now that the decision has been made, I, I have heard and heard previous, previously as well from some of our teaching staff who are really um, concerned or worried about returning um, and thinking about um, their own health and safety. And so what what we continue to help shape and, and share with them is the mitigation strategies that we will put in place, and our, we asked our board to approve as well. Um, so, for example, um, we are requiring all students to um, wear face coverings, and then we, we look at that differently depending upon the grade level. So elementary students will ask to be wearing those uh, face shields, um, and then at the secondary we would definitely have face shields as a possibility, but we would really see them wearing the face masks or the, the gaiters we've defined it so that there are other options that students can, can select. When on the bus, everybody's required to wear a face mask. We're, we're looking at um, for our drivers, for example, they will be provided with a face shield as well as face mask. We're asking students to um, load from the back, Um, and sit with siblings. And then obviously when we are um, going off the bus, they're from the front. So trying to reduce that um, in between time. Um, So I haven't heard a lot of concern yet from our transportation, so our bus drivers yet. Um, they've, They've shared, their director of transportation has shared with me that, you know, with the mitigation strategies, they're feeling feeling okay about returning and and they know that they'll have some extra cleaning um, compared to what we've done in the past. Um, But um, it's, it's just really thinking through and that's where it gets complex about what are all of those mitigation strategies that we can put in place to help our staff feel more comfortable about returning to the classroom this fall.
3: Okay, uh, let's talk about three essential areas. I don't know if anybody knows this, but I'm a former school teacher. (laughs) I taught high science between the time I left the Marine Corps and started law school. Talk about three areas: one, the bathroom; second, the playground; and third, food service. Take them in any order you want, but like, are you going to have specific guidelines for the playground, the bathroom? I mean, you know, normally when kids just got to go to the bathroom, they just go. But it's and it seems to be be an indispensable part of the school. <laughs> and how are you going to feed these children? And what kind of playground policies y'all you know, will have in place?
2: You know, again, I I am really fortunate in West Des Moines Community Schools that I have a great team. So when I think about our director of nutrition, um, and and how she and her staff pivoted in the spring and started feeding families. Um, uh, with grab-and-go meals, a um, couple of different times a week for the full week. Uh, it, it's just pretty amazing. And so as we have been planning for fall, it will look different, at the, again, at the elementary than the secondary. Um, but our first is to look at um, feeding students in the classroom. So instead of having large groups of students going into the lunchroom and having you know, a couple hundred students in the lunchroom packed sh- sh- Shoulder to shoulder with each other, um, third grade class, fourth grade class, the elementary students will um, put in, and then um, they will eat in their classroom. It could be a. We're deciding if it's a grab and go, so they'd actually walk to the lunchroom, grab it, and go back, or we're looking at the possibility of just having our our food service folks deliver to the classrooms. At the secondary, we're adding lunch shifts, so. To reduce the number of students in the classroom, we are going to spread out the lunch shifts across, um, you know, a larger span of time. And so that we can, again, reduce the number of kiddos that are eating in the classroom. Because that's, you know, even though we're requiring face masks, that's when they have to take them off, right? We can't eat with our face masks on. So... Um, we need to then start thinking more about that six foot social distancing at that lunchtime. So we're also looking at alternate places that we would allow students to eat at the secondary. So outside in our commons areas. um, So really not only spreading out the number of lunch shifts, we're adding two and three lunch shifts, but also then spreading out where they would eat and marking off tables. So For example, uh, lunch shift number one would use the tables with green X's on them, and then lunch shift number two would use tables with red so that we can clean the tables with green and not have that, I guess I'd call it contamination between uh, groups of kiddos. So that, you know, just hopefully what I'm trying to help you understand is the thought that has to go in and how we have to do school business differently differently. Um, to bring kids back and to try to keep kids and adults safe. So that's school lunch. Uh, When I think about recess, um, we are looking at, instead of having the entire third and fourth grade out at recess at the same time, what we've asked our elementary principals to do is to, again, spread out recess times. And so having cohorts of students. So let's say at one of our elementaries, we have two separate playgrounds. So we would have like 3A and 3B out at the same time, but they stay at those separate playgrounds. So reducing, again, that intermingling of cohorts of students um, and utilizing our playground space differently than we have in the past and, and, and keep kids on certain parts of our playground and reduce the number of students who are outside at the same time. Another good thing is is we know that outside with the, the transmission, it's it's less. So that's that's helpful for us as well. And then, um, let's see, nutrition, recents. Bathrooms. Bathrooms. Thank you. I knew there was another one. So, um, you know, we are, that hand-washing piece is so very important. And we will need to take hand-washing breaks more often than what we've done in the past. So um, definitely every hour hand washing or hand sanitizing. So we will um, reduce the number of kiddos that we are just having go to the bathroom at the same time, Um, actually bring some of those hand washing stations to uh, pods of classrooms. Or I'm not going to say today that we have one for every classroom yet because actually what we're finding is the supplies that we need aren't easy to come by. And so it's, again, thinking through that um, what, is our, what is our structure in the day look like? We have um, directional hallways, um, reducing the number of students. So maybe throughout a class period, you're rotating kids through. And that's some of, you know, that next level of work. Now that we know what our plan is to start in the fall, now our building level principals with teacher teams need to be starting to put really some of those details in place around like bathroom breaks, um, put the schedule together for the playground, um, all of those kinds of things that happen at that building level now.
3: So I have a follow-up question. How many hours a week have you been working?
2: (laughs) Oh, I think if you asked my husband, he'd say uh, 24-7, seven days a week. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been immense. That's for, that's for sure.
3: I mean, I just want people that are listening to us to understand just how difficult this stuff is. I mean, that's why I was, we were so happy to get you on because most people don't think about the complexities of having school in a pandemic. And, you know, I think we get a pretty good idea of that. <laughs> Well, I you know, I, I really thank you and every school administrator in the country. I mean, it's just the four hundred and eighty thousand bus drivers, I looked it up in the United States. I'm, I mean, people gotta stop and think of what a complex organism a school is. And my my hats off to, to you and every school administrator in the United States.
2: Yeah, well, thank you. I mean it is it is, you know, our our jobs are complex on a regular time, but this has taken it to a level that's really hard to explain. And I, I guess I've shared with some people that since, um, for us in Iowa, it was a March, uh, 13, we went on spring break and we never came back. Um, but since March 13th, I have felt like every decision is in a very urgent category and, You know, and it's and I've lived in this urgent category and our team has. uh, In fact, one of my team members yesterday said, do we realize this has been four months? And, um, yeah, they've been really difficult decisions and decisions as you think about health and safety and knowing also how important it is to have, as I said earlier, have kids in school, have our students back um, for their learning and to move them forward educationally. Um, you know, and then understanding everybody has a different, you know, and I don't even know all of the, you know, with our families, there's underlying health conditions. As we stated earlier, we have adults in that high risk category that are our employees. Um, and then there's other adults that with that high risk could have high risk, um, you know, underlying health conditions as well. So as we think about trying to come back to school, how do we do that in a safe manner? How do we ensure our our adults that we are taking their concerns into consideration, and yet help? I, I mean, I totally understand um, how difficult it is with for the economy if our students aren't in school. How to how do our families continue to work? You know the the stress that when we closed it puts on all of our families, and so. You know, part of our decision making was really looking at what our families wanted. And we had um, about 50% of our families, it was 48%, say they really wanted their kids back in school every day, five days a week. And we had about 20% that said they wanted their kids totally online. And so as we, and then we had that, you know, in between 30 some percent that wanted a modified approach a couple days a week in person and then the rest online. And so as we we thought about our recommendation to our board, we thought, you know, if we if we think about being responsive to our community and what's best for kids, the op, to provide the option to our families, either in person or online, made the most sense to us, knowing that we could and will institute um, mitigation strategies to help keep people safe. But um, I know that sometimes no matter what, people, they're, they're still nervous, and uh, we have to work through that with our employees. And And I'll tell you, another challenge that we're going to have is substitute teachers. So we've reached out to our subs, and right now we have about 50% of our subs who said they'd be willing to come back this fall and sub when we need them to sub. And so if you think about that, we we already have challenging times in the metro area because subs work for multiple school districts. So how, if, if half of them are willing to come back and that's a lesser number than what we've had in the past and we've had challenges in the past covering all of our classes and now knowing, um, we'll have even fewer resources there. What does that look like and what kind of stress will that put on our system? So that's something, that's the data point we just got this morning. And so now we need to start thinking, how are we going to, um, when we need substitute teachers, because we may have a teacher who gets sick during this time, um, how are we going to cover that classroom? So that's uh, our next step. My hair
1: is exploding. Yeah. No, and, and, and let me
2: just add, uh, school
1: opens, I think, schedule open in about six weeks. I think you've come up with what strikes me as a really sensible approach, giving your community and everything else. But it is also true that cases are not leveling out in Iowa; they're actually increasing some. Uh, and uh, so, what kind of guidance, if any, are you getting from the state?
2: Yeah, so you know that's a gr- another thank you for that question. So I, I really do appreciate um, the Iowa Department of Public Health, but more we work closer with the our county health, so Polk County Health Department, and we um, we meaning our Central Iowa Superintendents had a meeting with them last week, um, and they. Uh, put out some guidance for like fall sports um you know if we have a student who ends up being positive or a staff member guidance on how we would make decisions if we we close a building or a classroom and go online go virtual because we're going to be in and out of this in-person kind of virtual we believe probably for sure in the fall and and i would guess all school year i don't think the 2021 school year will be um quite normal this year. And so um, it it really is working in conjunction with Polk County Health and following the protocols that they've put in place for us. And um, our school nurses have uh, worked closely with them as well.
1: Dr. Ramey, you you mentioned sports and, and I know enough of Des Moines to know that the Valley High Tigers are among the great football teams in the state of Iowa. They're scheduled to have their opening game August 28th against Roosevelt. Will there be a kickoff?
2: Well, we haven't heard yet. Um, right now, I would say that's to, to be determined. And uh, I don't know. It's you know, As I'm watching the colleges and what's happening there, I, I do have a wonder if we will end up having a football season this fall. I know that um, in, in conversations with my AD, our athletics director, that – He and other ADs really would like to see fall sports happen. You know, there's sports as well as any extracurricular, co-curricular music and so forth all um, play a really important role in our students' lives. And so to be able to see them move and happen would be awesome. I wonder about certain sports like football. I'd even say volleyball in the close connection. You know, we Iowa... Um, allowed baseball and softball to happen. They started um, in mid-June. And if you followed any of that, you've seen that some uh, teams due to COVID cases have had to then cancel their season after a couple of weeks. Um, we, knock on wood, we here in West Des Moines, if our kids have stayed healthy and we're still in the, having a season. So they're going into postseason play actually at the end of this week. So But that, those, you know, baseball and softball, the contact is not like football, and so um, we're waiting to get some guidance from the girls and boys athletic unions. Um, And I don't know; they hopefully by the end of July we'll hear more on that. Um, But I'm skeptical if that will if we'll have a season.
3: What is the like the morale of your staff and and teachers and just the whole thing? If you have a morale issue or. How how's that how's the it plan this has got to be stressful on a lot of people
2: yeah I, you know we have a wonderful staff let me first say that but i i do know when you say it's stressful there absolutely we have we have some you know just like in any organization so with all when i think about all of our employees we have if you included substitute teachers it could be anywhere up to close to 2000 but Without substitute teachers, we'd say we typically have about 16, 1700 staff, and that's all. That's teachers, bus drivers, um, child care providers, all that we do. And so you have some that are just really anxious and ready to get back to work, and, and thanks uh, for the mitigation strategy. And then you have others that are really concerned um, because of the possibility with the, with the recommendation and what the board approved Monday night. We could have classrooms that have 26 kids in them, depending upon, we don't know yet, the parents will um, select which model by the end of July. And so I, I've heard from some teachers since Monday night's decision that their their stress level has gone up because they're concerned about having a, possibly a full classroom. And, um, you know, I talked to them about the, the different cleaning strategies that will be in place, the mask wearing and in the 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 research behind that and how that helps. And then also the other possibilities that if possible, and this isn't always possible, you know, take the class outside when the weather's nice enough. And if it, if what you're doing in class, um, you know, would, would allow for that, like if you could do that to be outdoors as well. So, but I do know that we, in fact, I was, the meeting I was in earlier this morning with my small superintendent team, um, I said, we've got, based on some conversations I had, I said, we've got to start thinking about how can we help our staff who are really concerned about returning this fall and, and start strategizing on what those strategies could be and, and what time can we give them? That's the other piece. There's stress, not only just about having 26 in the classroom, but today I'm teaching face-to-face and then, oops, we have a case. And then tomorrow I might have to be online. So that planning and giving them time to be able to plan, to be prepared for when we have to move between um, in-person and online learning.
1: Well, I I have to tell you, uh, we we have, I tell you what we really learned, Dr. Ramey, we sit here in Washington or other places and it's open or don't open and and in-person or not, uh, and it almost makes it seem like it's an s- easy decision. What you, I think, have really, really elucidated today is these are really tough choices. And it's not that anyone is, is always right or always wrong, uh, but it's, it's critical that kids go to school and it's critical that the virus not spread. And that's the dilemma that's been put in your lap. And um, you've, you've not only taught us a lot today uh, as the great educator you are, but it seems to me that you're certainly heading in the right track. And we really thank you a lot for being with us.
2: Well, I, I do appreciate you having me on, and I, I will say, I think you said it. Um, there isn't a uh, the right plan, right? I mean, it's it, it's a difficult decision that um, schools are in, and um, there isn't a perfect plan. So,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, and
2: the and the cost, you know, the the cost that I think uh, the state or the School, AASA, so the National Superintendents Association. I think they estimated the cost to reopen schools is like an extra four hundred and ninety per student, four hundred and ninety dollars per student. So just the extra cost, and the funding isn't quite following that. The need to for all of the different strategies that we have to put in place, but
1: well. Wow. What challenges? Well, if it, if the weather stays nice, go to my favorite place in Des Moines and, and teach classes at a principal park.
2: Yes. That'd be awesome. <laughs> wouldn't it?
1: It would be. It would be Dr. Ramey. will James, do you have a closing word? I don't want to. I just want well, just thank her for taking
3: time to do this. And I want everybody to listen to this show to understand, you got to comp- – I don't know how many individual school districts there are in the United States. There must be 5,000. 13,000, I think. Whatever it is, just times this, times that. And every school district, every school superintendent, every school administrator is having to go through the same things. And I'm, I'm just so glad we did this show. And I'm glad that our listeners had a chance to just see the challenges that people are faced with. And, you know, people of our generation, we don't have kids, so we don't think about it. But I think it's important for every American to think about the difficulty and challenges that educators are having across this country. And I was just delighted to we're for
1: this show. Uh, uh, Amen. And Dr. Ramey, go back to your real job. And thank you so much.
2: And thank you.
1: We have one more guest today, James. Ben Sheehan is a very humorous and a very talented young man, James Carville. He inherited, honestly, from his mom and his dad. Uh, We've worked with his dad, both of us have, and he's the best in the business. Uh, ben has written a very funny and also an insightful book. Oh, my God, what the F does the Constitution actually say? The inspiration, I think this is right, Ben, is that we teach history in school, but we don't teach civics. Most Americans don't even know there are three branches of government. You write, and I suspect if I went out and I quiz people on what's the Bill of Rights, uh, I'd be lucky to break double digits. Uh,
0: and- no, that's you're you're completely correct. It's something that that we we used to teach a lot of, uh, we teach a lot less of. And we've sort of gotten to this place where we're shoehorning it into uh, into social studies or to U.S. history. But it's really its own focus and its own subject, knowing the the mechanics of government so that we can both affect it and participate in it.
1: Well, you know, it's also the, the parts I love. I mean, what you do is you then uh, you write, uh, you know, each amendment, each article, the Declaration of Independence. Then you give your own little interpretation And after the declaration, uh, you basically say, "Look, King George, if you didn't get what we're saying, it's fuck you." Uh, And I I think that really adds to the understanding. But one of the things that struck me was reading. I read the Constitution a number of times. I've written a little bit about it. I don't have James Carville's uh, legal scholar background, but you know, when I read about the Ninth Amendment, which I hadn't paid a whole lot of attention to, frankly, it really dawned on me. Madison, as you put it, was saying, "Hey." There's a bunch of other rights that we probably forgot, but you have those rights, too. And that, in a way, is a refutation of those strict constructionists like Alito and Thomas.
0: Yeah, and this is something that he had the wherewithal to to understand. You know, the, the Bill of Rights, it's sort of the context of it being that this was something that was agreed to before the Constitution was signed. There were a lot of uh, uh, states and representatives from those states who were extremely hesitant. They thought that this Constitution was giving uh, uh, the, the the federal government too much power, and that's kind of what they wanted to avoid. So, in exchange for the final ratification votes on the Constitution, uh, Madison promised uh, some of those delegates that he was going to add a bunch of amendments, uh, which became the Bill of Rights, to to protect from from government uh, overreach and intrusion, and it actually started with 19 uh, that he drafted, and then that w- was whittled down uh, by the the Senate and the House to 12 that they then sent to the states, and the states ratified 10, and those have become the the 10 we all know about. But um, this was very much his, uh, his design to say, you know, we're, we're thinking of a lot of stuff, uh, but there are some other things that we didn't include, and just because they're not in here doesn't mean that you don't have them.
1: Well, you also, it's clear that, that, look, Washington and Jefferson are the most celebrated of the founders, but in many ways, Madison and Hamilton were as if not more important, and they're not as rec- at least before the musical, they weren't as recognized. Madison wrote the Constitution, basically, and Hamilton established the financial framework of America.
0: Yeah. And they've been, you know, sort of relegated to the to the sidelines until recently. And I have my own sort of odd theories as to as to why that is. But, you know, you, you think about all the monuments and the buildings and the the cities and and towns named after uh, 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 Jefferson and, and Washington, um, you know, looking back at, you know, madison was only five foot four uh he wasn't a great speaker so you know in a time uh, pre-social media uh pre-cameras you know standing in front of a crowd he's, he doesn't have a commanding presence. he's not able to really deliver and inspire so those two things worked uh, against him but when you go back and look at the the convention and the contributions his his contributions are so much more uh than than we remember him for for have doing
1: he also i'm turning over to james now he was born in my hometown so uh that that that's- that's That's another great (laughs) feather in his cap. Orange, Virginia. Go ahead, James. So, uh,
3: Ben, when you saw the Faithless Electors case come out of the Supreme Court, nine to nothing, Mm -hmm. were you pleased, displeased, or not that interested in the decision?
0: Well I was very interested in in the decision um you know this is this is something that goes very very much back to the 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 fundamental design was that states have very have control over their elections and specifically for presidential elections the uh control over how they choose their electors and uh, for, for anyone who's listening who's not uh, 100% caught up, basically what the Supreme Court said is that um, electors, uh, you know, some states mandate electors to uh, to vote how the uh, popular vote goes in their state. Uh, some states don't mandate that. And are those mandates constitutional? And we're coming up on such a polarized election where there is a chance, as we saw in 2016, it didn't change the outcome of the election, but there were some electors that, that defected and, and went independent. Um, are are those mandates constitutional? So I'm not surprised at the decision, but I think it clarifies um, you know, what we're going to be seeing so that we know, you know for the existing laws in specific states that mandate electors vote along with the, um, the popular vote in the state, those are constitutional. If there are states, legislatures that pass a law between now and November 3rd, uh, those laws, if they're binding electors, are also going to be constitutional. So it sort of clarifies any ambiguity.
3: Well, I think the most important provision in the Constitution is the 15th Amendment. And, it, it, and what's happened is the courts don't enforce the 15th Amendment. So it, in Georgia, you have two voting machines for every thousand voters in Fulton and DeKalb, and in all-white Northwest Georgia, you have 100 voting machines for every thousand people. And without the protection of the 15th Amendment, which guarantees the right to vote, your democracy is in trouble. And I think the, think the, the failure of the Supreme Court to enforce the clear language of the 15th Amendment has been hugely detrimental to our democracy.
0: I would agree with you completely, and I would add that I was in Georgia on Election Day in 2018. I founded an organization called OMGWTF that during the midterms stood for Ohio, Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin, Texas, and Florida. And in those six states, uh, we did get out the vote efforts. We went and uh, brought food to, to people waiting on long lines to vote. And I went to two places on election day in Georgia, in Gwinnett County, just northeast of Atlanta. And the first place I went to was mostly white uh, voters waiting in line, I'd say maybe 15, 20 minute wait. And the second place I went, mostly voters of color. And it was about a four hour wait. Uh, There were 16 or so voting machines in the gym. They were only using two because that was the order from their county board of elections. They only had two uh, polling workers uh, checking in voters. Why, even though they had more workers available, order from the Gwinnett County Board of Elections. At one point, they even turned off the AC. And this is not something I ever thought I would see in my lifetime. In fact, it's something that, that, that was covered to some extent in history books uh, about the, the 50s and 60s and before. But what I think it goes back to is a very fundamental sort of misunderstanding that I think a lot of us have about the Constitution in the sense that it never proactively says who can vote. It says that citizens, as you point out in the 15th Amendment, it says that U.S. citizens can't have their vote denied because of their race, color, or previous condition of servitude, but it doesn't say the people proactively get these rights. And I think this is something that isn't discussed enough, but it's something that leaves a lot of power to... The states and and after the Fifteenth Amendment was was ratified in, in 1870 you saw um, so many laws that that then became part of state constitutions things like uh, literacy t- literacy tests um, uh, reading and understanding extremely uh, uh, complicated case law you had things like poll taxes which uh, we know is in the in the Constitution of the Twenty Fourth Amendment abolishing those um, but you also had things like jelly bean tests I mean literally voters of color being asked to guess the amount of jelly beans in a jar or the bubbles in a bar of soap. And and one of my personal heroes, John Lewis, has talked about this. But every time we've had this sort of large advancement in, in democracy or expansion of democracy at the federal level, we've seen certain, not all, but certain state and local governments find loopholes and ways around it and ways to, to, to circumvent them uh, to, to prolong discrimination. And I think in the wake of the Shelby County Holder decision in 2013, we're seeing a lot of those methods sort of resurface that had been banned. And, and outlawed for 48 years, but are now sort of rearing their their ugly heads again.
3: Yeah, Shelby County versus Ho is a, our modern version of Dred Scott and Plessy. Mm-hmm. Is that bad. Decision? Yes, it really is horrible. And and it, it it is not very difficult to read the 15th Amendment and think that the Supreme Court couldn't enforce that. Right. You know, and, and the same thing you're talking about in Georgia happens in Florida every year. It's it's just outrageous.
0: Well, I remember when, uh, and also, you know, uh, the 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 F in OMGWTF was Florida, and so we were involved in uh, we we supported the governor's uh, 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 race, and we did an effort, uh, an event in uh, University of Central Florida with a uh, thousand students, and uh, Senator Bernie Sanders spoke, and we all marched over to, to to vote after that. But one thing that I learned about in the in the wake of the governor's races, all the absentee ballots by mail that were thrown out because of signature mismatch, and you literally. Have have people who are not trained forensic specialists, who are, are, are volunteer poll workers, who are sitting there looking at a, a, a signature either on a, in a photo of a, um, a driver's license or a social security card, and then a photo a, a signature on the back of an absentee ballot, and making their best guess as to whether or not the signatures match, and then discounting ballots or counting them based on that. And this is something that keeps me up at night. Uh, I'm, I'm very worried about this. But to, yes, to your point, we're seeing different versions of, of the same sort of suppression in, 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 in different states uh, that were previously covered by the Voting Rights Act that, that are no longer, thanks to Shelby Counterholder. Um, but, but these are all these sort of new iterations, again, of a very old uh, problem, and it's not specific to, to one state.
1: Well, I hope all of our listeners will get Ben Sheehan's book. It's O-M-G-W-T-F. I think it stands for something slightly different than uh, the uh, 2018 states, uh, Ben. And it's, does the Constitution actually say, question mark, you will learn a lot, but you also will have a lot of fun reading it. Ben Sheehan, say hi to your dad, and thanks for being with us.
0: <laughs> I will. Thanks so much for having me. James
1: Carville? well, yeah, that was a hell of a show. <laughs> well, we're not finished. Oh, oh, don't don't rest on your laurels yet. We're not finished. Uh, a little bit short, I'm going to ask you, this, this is going to be a very, we both agree, Joe Biden is headed towards a victory in November and it's going to be a good year for the Democrats, anywhere from a decisive to a tsunami. But I'm going to ask you to do something that's going to be tough. I'm going to ask you to get in Jen Dillon's shoes. It's going to be a tight fit. This is the Biden campaign manager, and you don't have the luxury of just saying, "Boy, this thing is all done; we're going to win." What What are you thinking right now? What are your worries? What are your considerations? What are your priorities? You're the Biden campaign manager.
3: Yeah, it is. This cycle is so fundamentally different because, as we knew, presidential campaigns—you had a campaign manager and a Dick, you know, field staff, Ohio, Florida, wherever you. Were and did that kind of stuff. And you, you ran television ads. There is so much stuff going on away from the ball in this election. There's so much energy that exists outside of the Biden campaign. So you, you have to judge, do I need to really need to do negative ads when I got the vote bets people? I got the, the Neville Trumpers. I got all the, all of these different groups doing this. And, You know, if you look at what our friend Roger Altman and Bob Rubin are doing in Florida, how how do you assess all of the assets that you have that are really not under your control, and then you fill in and supplement that? But the biggest asset that a candidate, a campaign has is its candidate. And I think they're using Vice President Biden very well now. And of course, it's going to be more because of that convention, we've got how that works out. They're going to have debates. You know, they're going to have different decisions like that. But we tend to go, we're not going to start playing in Georgia. And who's up? Many There's going to be spots all over Georgia. So it's just, I think it's assessing and inventory in where you are. And the campaign can, can move within that framework. Now, there's one other thing I want to talk about before we leave. And that's the Republican convention. So this thing starts out, it's going to be in Charlotte. So Trump gets mad and it's going to Jacksonville. Of course, Florida is Brazil now. And so the idea is now they're going to do it outside. OK, Jacksonville is about the same latitude as New Orleans. So in the Republican convention is August 23rd to 26th. Let me tell you what it does in the afternoon and early evening at that latitude. It rains a lot. The second thing you got to worry about that you're hitting, you're about in the prime of the hurricane season. So in, in the humidity is off the chart. You're sitting outside in Jacksonville at three o'clock in the afternoon, you're going to melt. And this thing, this whole Republican convention thing is, is laughable. It's laughable. And it's all because of him. And now, no, no one wants to go. I mean, all of the, like, even Miss McConnell's not going to go. But it is going to be a a catastrophe wrapped in a fiasco. I mean, it, this is this is really, this is really a stupid thing.
1: It is, and the biggest the biggest winner in this is Charlotte, North Carolina, because they're not uh, they're not stuck with it. Let me let me let me just wrap up finally uh, the Jen Dillon thing. If you're a campaign manager, even when things look as great as they look now, you have to you have to have a worry. You have to think, okay, what is my biggest worry so I can prepare for the eventuality uh, that something bad may happen. What's your biggest worry right now? That they launch some kind of attack,
3: you know, like a swift boat thing. Right. Or the 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 email or something. And you don't tend to it and it causes an infection. All right. I I don't think that's gonna happen, but that would be would be
1: worrying me. Oh, James, we know it's gonna happen. We know they'll do it. The question is whether it's effective. I don't think it'll, get, I don't think it'll reach infection state. Right, stage. right. Well, of course it'll go
3: I mean, it. And so far, nothing has worked. And there's a very good piece in Five Thirty Eight. I just read, where they, actually, Biden has more enthusiastic voters than Trump. And it's very good because you're right, People aren't as enthusiastic about voting for Biden, but what they're really enthusiastic about is voting against Trump, and that's where the real enthusiasm gap is. And when people understand that, I think Jen has got a sterling reputation from everybody that I talk to, mm-hmm, me too. and I think that they understand that too. That's just, just a lot of the biggest thing they got to do is have to harness this energy that the harness this energy because you you couldn't create energy like trump creates energy it's just impossible so when you you know when you got a bucking bronco you just got to hang on and ride sometimes
1: hang on and ride right uh before we go we're going to try something and we're going to steal from an old television show that i used to do and have an outrage of the week at the end but we're going to have a uh, a caveat we cannot do anything that's related to Trump because if that were the case, we would just have to top ourselves every week because everything he does is an outrage. So it's kind of a non-Trump outrage of the week, and I'm going to go first. Uh, ESPN suspended their really top-notch NBA reporter, uh, Adrian Wojnarowski, for an obscene tweet he directed at Missouri Senator Josh, Hawley. Now you know Adrian could have been a little more artful, but this is terrible overreaction. The real offense here. Uh, it's not the reporter, but it's Senator Hawley, who playing to racist elements in the Trump base with an eye to 2024, complained NBA players are allowed to show support for social justice, but not anti, uh, police, but they can't put in uh, anti-Chinese or pro-peace slogans on their back. Senator, let me explain something to you. Almost 80% of NBA players are African-Americans. They care deeply about racial injustice illuminated by the murder of George Floyd. By bringing in these other matters, you are debasing that concern. But then again, you're the same senator who wants to keep those military bases named after pro-slavery Confederate traitors. James, I'm with Adrian.
3: Yeah, I guess my outrage would be if any mistake anybody makes now is met with the death penalty. This this is all across the spectrum. I mean, you know, there are misdemeanors, there are felonies. That there are some crimes that give you a year, some give you life imprisonment, right? And when the culture, all across the spectrum of the culture, when it becomes as unforgiving as it is becoming, the result is not going to be good. It's not going to be good. And everything in this world, has perspective. Everything in this world has nuance. And what that guy did, maybe he shouldn't have done it. All right. Like a reprimand, you kick him off the aft for two weeks or something like that. But no, nope, everything, there's no, there is no penalty in American culture other than the death penalty. And that's just not the way to run a country.
1: Yeah. And Senator Hawley will get no penalty, uh, unfortunately. But uh, this has really been an interesting show, James. I think I probably learned more from this than any show we've done. I want to thank everybody, uh, starting with uh, Lisa Ramey. and I thank everybody out there for listening to 2020 Politics War Room. Follow the show on Twitter at Politics War Room. More and more people have been emailing the show, politicswarroom at gmail.com. If you have a comment or question for us, appreciate your feedback. Thanks for subscribing, and please rate with a nice review if possible. Please be safe out there. Uh, That includes you, James, and we'll talk again next week.